Hello, and welcome to Lockdown Literature, with me, James. Across the world, many of you can find to your homes for the foreseeable future. It can be lonely to sit at home by oneself, so to try and ease your soul, I'll read from a selection of works to help you through this torrid period. Today, I'll read The Snow Goose by Paul Gallico. The book will be split over two episodes, so be sure to tune in next time for the second part. For now, here is part one of The Snow Goose by Paul Gallico. The Great Marsh lies on the Essex coast between the village of Chelmbury and the ancient Saxon oyster-fishing hamlet of Wickledruth. It's one of the last of the wild places of England, a low, far-reaching expanse of grass and reeds and half-submerged meadowlands ending in the great saltings and mudflats and tidal pools near the restless sea. Tidal creeks and estuaries and the crooked meandering arms of many little rivers whose mouths lap at the edge of the ocean cut through the sodden land that seems to rise and fall and breathe with the recurrence of the daily tides. It is desolate, utterly lonely, and made lonelier by the calls and cries of the wildfowl that make their homes in the marshlands and saltings. The wild geese and the gulls, the teal and the widgeon, the red shanks and curlews that pick their way through the tidal pools. Of human habitants, there are none, and none are seen, with the occasional exception of a wild fowler or native oyster fisherman, who still ply a trade already ancient when the Normans came to Hastings. Greys and blues and soft greens are the colours, for when the skies are dark in the long winters, the many waters of the beaches and marshes reflect the cold and sombre colour. But sometimes, with sunrise and sunset, sky and land are aflame with red and golden fire. Hard by one of the winding arms of the little river Elder runs the embankment of an old sea wall, smooth and solid, without a break, a bulwark to the land against the enroaching sea. Deep into a salting, some three miles from the English Channel it runs, and there turns north. At that corner, its face is gouged, broken and shattered. It has been breached, and at the breach the hungry sea has already entered and taken for its own the land, the wall, and all that stood there. At low water, the blackened and ruptured stones of the ruins of an abandoned lighthouse show above the surface, with here and there, like boy markers, the top of a sagging fence post. Once this lighthouse abutted on the sea and was a beacon on the Essex coast. Time shifted land and water, and its usefulness came to an end. Lately, it served again as a human habitation. In it, there lived a lonely man. His body was warped, but his heart was filled with love for wild and hunted things. He was ugly to look upon, but he created great beauty. It is about him, and a child who came to know him and see beyond the grotesque form that housed him to what lay within, that this story is told. It is not a story that falls easily and smoothly into sequence. It has been garnered from many sources and from many people. Some of it comes in the form of fragments from men who looked upon strange and violent scenes, for the sea has claimed its own and spreads its rippled blanket over the site, 
and the great white bird with the black-tipped pinions that saw it all from the beginning to the end has returned to the dark frozen silences of the Northlands whence it came. In the late spring of 1930, Philip Ryder came to the abandoned lighthouse at the mouth of the Elder. He bought the light and many acres of marshland and salting surrounding it. He lived and worked there alone the year round. He was a painter of birds and of nature who, for reasons, had withdrawn from all human society. Some of the reasons were apparent on his fortnightly visits to the little village of Chelmbury for supplies, where the natives looked askance at his misshapen body and dark visage. For he was a hunchback, and his left arm was crippled, thin and bent at the wrist, like a claw of a bird. They soon became used to his queer figure, small but powerful, the massive, dark-bearded head set just slightly below the mysterious mound on his back, the glowing eyes and the clawed hand, and marked him off as that queer painter chap that lives down to Lighthouse. Physical deformity often breeds hatred of humanity in men. Ryder did not hate. He loved very greatly man, the animal kingdom, and all nature. His heart was filled with pity and understanding. He had mastered his handicap, but he could not master the rebuffs he suffered due to his appearance. The thing that drove him into seclusion was his failure to find anywhere a return of the warmth that flowed from him. He repelled women. Men would have warmed to him had they got to know him, but the mere fact that an effort was being made hurt Ryder and drove him to avoid the person making it. He was 27 when he came to the Great Marsh. He had travelled much and fought valiantly before he made the decision to withdraw from a world in which he could not take part as other men. For all the artist's sensitivity and woman's tenderness locked in his barreled breast, he was very much a man. In his retreat, he had his birds, his painting and his boat. He owned a 16-footer, which he sailed with wonderful skill. Alone, with no eyes to watch him, he managed well with his deformed hand, and he often used his strong teeth to handle the sheets of his billowing sails in a tricky blow. He would sail the tidal creek and estuaries and out to sea, and would be gone for days at a time, looking for new species of birds to photograph or sketch, and he became an adept at netting them to add to his collection of tamed wildfowl in the pen near his studio that formed the nucleus of a sanctuary. He never shot over a bird, and wildfowlers were not welcome near his premises. He was a friend to all things wild, and the wild things repaid him with their friendship. Tamed in his enclosures were the geese that came winging down the coast from Iceland and Spitsbergen each October, in great skeins that darkened the sky and filled the air with the rushing noise of their passage, the brown-bodied pink feet, white-breasted barnacles, with their dark necks and clown's masks, the wild white fronts with black-barrelled breasts, and many species of wild ducks, widgeon, mallard, pintails, teal, and shovelers. Some were pinioned so that they would remain there, as a sign and signal to the wild ones that came down at each winter's beginning that here was food and sanctuary. Many hundreds came and remained with him all through the cold weather from October to the early spring, when they migrated north again to their breeding grounds below the ice rim. Ryada was content in the knowledge that when storms blew or it was bitter cold and food was scarce, 
or the big punt guns of the distant bag hunters roared. His birds were safe, that he had gathered to the sanctuary and security of his own arms and heart these many wild and beautiful creatures who knew and trusted him. They would answer the call of the north in the spring, but in the fall they would come back, barking and whooping and honking in the autumn sky, to circle the landmark of the old light and drop to earth nearby to be his guests again, birds that he well remembered and recognised from the previous year. And this made Ryada happy, because he knew that implanted somewhere in their beings was the germ knowledge of his existence and his safe haven, that this knowledge had become part of them, and with the coming of the grey skies and the winds from the north, would send them unerringly back to him. For the rest, his heart and soul went into the painting of the country in which he lived and its creatures. There are not many riders extant. He hoarded them jealously, piling them up in his lighthouse and the storerooms above by the hundreds. He was not satisfied with them, because as an artist, he was uncompromising. But the few that have reached the market are masterpieces, filled with the glow and colours of marsh-reflected light, the feel of flight, the push of birds breasting a morning wind bending the tall flag reeds. He painted the loneliness and the smell of the salt-laden cold, the eternity and agelessness of marshes, the wild living creatures, dawn flights and frightened things taking to the air, and the winged shadows at night hiding from the moon. One November afternoon, three years after Ryada had come to the Great Marsh, a child approached the lighthouse studio by means of the sea wall. In her arms, she carried a burden. She was no more than twelve, slender, dirty, nervous, and timid as a bird, but beneath the grime as eerily beautiful as a marsh fairy. She was pure Saxon, large-boned, fair, with a head to which her body was yet to grow, and deep-set, violet-coloured eyes. She was desperately frightened of the ugly man she had come to see, for legend had already begun to gather about Ryada, and the native wildfowlers hated him for interfering with their sport. But greater than her fear was the need of that which she bore, for locked in her child's heart was the knowledge, picked up somewhere in the swampland, that this ogre who lived in the lighthouse had magic that could heal injured things. She had never seen Ryada before, and was close to fleeing in panic at the dark apparition that appeared at the studio door, drawn by her footsteps, the black head and beard, the sinister hump, and the crooked claw. She stood there staring, poised like a disturbed marsh bird for instant flight, but his voice was deep and kind when he spoke to her. What is it, child? She stood her ground, and then edged timidly forward, the thing she carried in her arms was a large white bird, and it was quite still. There were stains of blood on its whiteness and on her kirtle where she held it to her. The girl placed it in his arms. I found it, sir. It's hurted. Is it still alive? Yes, yes, I think so. Come in, child, come in. Ryder went inside, bearing the bird, which he placed upon a table where it moved feebly. Curiosity overcame fear. The girl followed and found herself in a room warmed by a coal fire, shining with many-coloured pictures that covered the walls and full of strange but pleasant smells. The bird fluttered. With his good hand, Ryder spread one of its immense white pinions. The end was beautifully tipped with black. Ryder looked and marvelled and said, 
Child, where did you find it? In marsh, sir, where fowlers had been. What, what is it, sir? It's a snow goose from Canada. But how in all heaven it came here? The name seemed to mean nothing to the little girl. Her deep violet eyes shining out of the dirt on her thin face were fixed with concern on the injured bird. She said, Can, can he eat it, sir? Yes, yes, said Ryada. We will try. Come, you shall help me. There were scissors and bandages and splints on a shelf, and he was marvellously deft, even with the crooked claw that managed to hold things. He said, Ah, she has been shot, poor thing. Her leg is broken and the wingtip, but not badly. See, we will clip her primaries so that we can bandage it, but in the spring the feathers will grow and she will be able to fly again. We'll bandage it close to her body so that she cannot move until it has set, and then make a splint for the poor leg. Her fears forgotten, the child watched fascinated as he worked, and all the more so because while he fixed a fine splint to the shattered leg, he told her the most wonderful story. The bird was a young one, no more than a year old. She was born in a northern land far, far across the seas, a land belonging to England. Flying to the south to escape the snow and ice and bitter cold, a great storm had seized her and whirled and buffeted her about. It was a truly terrible storm, stronger than her great wings, stronger than anything. For days and nights it held her in its grip, and there was nothing she could do but fly before it. When finally it had blown itself out and her sure instincts took her south again, she was over a different land and surrounded by strange birds that she had never seen before. At last, exhausted by her ordeal, she had sunk to rest in a friendly green marsh, only to be met by the blast from the hunter's gun. A bitter reception for a visiting princess, concluded Ryada. We will call her La Princesse Perdue, the lost princess, and in a few days she will be feeling much better, see? He reached into his pocket and produced a handful of grain. The snow goose opened its round yellow eyes and nibbled at it. The child laughed with delight, and then suddenly caught her breath with alarm as the full import of where she was pressed in upon her, and without a word she turned and fled out the door. Wait! Wait! cried Ryada, and went up to the entrance, where he stopped so that it framed his dark bulk. The girl was already fleeing down the sea wall, but she paused at his voice and looked back. "'What is your name, child?' "'Frith.' "'Eh?' said Ryada. "'Frither, I suppose. Where do you live?' "'We're fisherfolk at Wickledroth.' She gave the name the old Saxon pronunciation. "'Will you come back tomorrow or the next day to see how the princess is getting along?' She paused, and again Ryder must have thought of the wild water birds caught motionless in that split second of alarm before they took to flight. But her thin voice came back to him. Aye! And then she was gone, with her fair hair streaming out behind her. The snow goose mended rapidly, and by midwinter was already limping about the enclosure with the wild pink-footed geese with which it associated, rather than the barnacles, and had learned to come to be fed at Ryder's call. And the child, Fritha, or Frith, was a frequent visitor. She had overcome her fear of Ryada. Her imagination was captured by the presence of this strange white princess from a land far over the sea, a land that was all pink, 
as she knew from the map that Ryada showed her, and on which they traced the stormy path of the lost bird from its home in Canada to the great marsh of Essex. Then one June morning, a group of late pink feet, fat and well-fed from the winter at the lighthouse, answered the stronger call of the breeding grounds and rose lazily, climbing into the sky in ever-widening circles. With them, her white body and black-tipped pinions shining in the spring sun, was the snow goose. It so happened that Frith was at the lighthouse. Her cry brought Ryada running down from the studio. Look, look, the princess, be she going away? Ryada stared into the sky at the climbing specks. Aye, he said, unconsciously dropping into her manner of speech. The princess is going home. Listen, she is bidding us farewell. Out of the clear sky came the mournful barking of the pink feet, and above it the higher, clearer note of the snow goose. The specks drifted northward, formed into a tiny V, diminished and vanished. With the departure of the snow goose ended the visits of Frith to the lighthouse. Ryada learned all over again the meaning of the word loneliness. That summer, out of his memory, he painted a picture of a slender, grime-covered child, her fair hair blown by a November storm, who bore in her arms a wounded white bird. That was part one of The Snow Goose by Paul Gallico, 1897-1976. If you enjoyed this, please tune in next time for part two, and if you have any suggestions for future readings, don't hesitate to let me know. You can reach me via Facebook at a British man in Japan, each word separated by a full stop, or Instagram at British man in Japan, again with each word separated by a full stop. Episodes will be released every Monday and should be available via Apple's podcast directory. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and stay indoors should it be required of you. <laughs>